0: Hello and welcome to Mythmakers. Mythmakers is the podcast for fantasy fans and fantasy creatives brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. My name is Julia Golding. I'm the director of the Centre, but also I spend most of my time as an author writing in many genres, but I particularly love writing fantasy. Now, the f- Centre has been going for just over a year now and we've already seen... Large numbers of students go through our creative programme. But one of the most exciting spin-offs has been the setting up amongst the writers of their own support groups, which, of course, um, we're calling like a new version of the Inklings, which brings people from around the world together with like-minded folk to support each other in their creative journey after they've finished the courses with us. And we have quite a lovely little community that... uh, stays together and carries on chatting. One group celebrated the um, publishing of one of our tutors' books by having a special get-together and I thought you'd enjoy to hear the conversation and just how um, coming together on a regular basis gives a sort of ease with professional authors and also gives the chance to get under the, the skin of what it's like to write a fantasy book. So Please join us to listen in to the launch of James Nichols, one of our tutors, new middle grade fantasy book, *Spell Tailors*, and the discussion is led by Elizabeth Clark, who was one of our very first students. Well, I'm so happy to be here with all of you today. Um,
1: we have a larger group than we normally have, which is our Tolkien Writing Inklings group, which was. Founded from the very first course um, offered by the Oxford Center for Fantasy with Julia and James. And I actually have a t-shirt back here where everyone kindly signed like rock stars. And James, <laughs> see your beautiful signature there.
2: In the yeah. Yeah. And Yep. Um,
1: yep. And so uh, so it's nice for all of us. Um, we have Lucy here and Christina and I'm trying to see who else is is new. So it's very special to have this chance to be here together. And I actually um, I wrote something um, that way I wouldn't mess it up because <laughs> I'm kind of nervous. And I think um, that brings back an old memory with my first tutorial with James, where I told him I was very nervous, and he said something unbelievably kind and thoughtful, and and so put me and right at ease. And I think I've heard that from other people as well. So. Um, I wanted to say welcome. Happy September and early fall. Uh, We have a few leaves changing here on the trees. I can't wait for the orange, red, and yellow window panes to form in the forest. My name's Elizabeth. Most of you know that. Elizabeth Clark. I'm an alumnus of the Oxford Center for Fantasy, having completed two courses, the first online fantasy course taught by Julia, James, M.G., Rowena, and Lucy, and the 12-month novel in a year course. And like many of us, I dream of going to Oxford to see my friends and to be with Julia and attending an in-person course someday. Um, I finished my first novel, uh, working with Julia. And I live on my farm in Bath, New Hampshire, in the U.S. with my two sons, although Charlie's off and away. And hi, McCall, by the way. um, And Andrew. um, And I have a business in coastal Maine in Kennebunkport. Um, I'm an enthusiastic and proud organizing member of the Project Northmore Tolkien Writing Inkling Group, TWIG, and we've all become dear friends now, which I'm unbelievably grateful for, and, uh, James, I include you in that special group, um, and I like to consider myself a hobbit. That's my dearest association. So thank you for being here, James, especially during a hectic pub period of your life, Today, we're celebrating and partying with our dear guest of honor, the distinguished and unbelievably talented and full of life, James Nichol. The Tailors is published by the imaginative, fun, and highly respected Chicken House and Barry Cunningham. There it is. Yeah, and, and I hope you all get to read it because I'm just telling you right from the beginning, you're going to get transported and you're going to care very much about Hen and want to hear his story. Um, uh, the tailors is James' first novel after his phenomenally successful and well-loved Apprentice Witch trilogy that was picked up for a television series. Uh, uh, and also, I should have mentioned uh, Chicken House is affiliated with Scholastic Books. It's owned by Scholastics in the United States. And um, I don't know uh, if you know this, some of you know this and may have had the same experience I had, but... My first independent moment picking a book out was age six through Scholastic because they would come to the schools and they traditionally visit all schools across the United States and give you a beautiful pamphlet. So, you know, I would see Apprentice Witch there and Andrew saw it. And, you know, it's it's a pretty amazing part of our literary history. So I just wanted to say that. Um, and um what else? Uh, so, as far as um, James's book goes, I'm I still have to purchase the book itself, the physical book, but I've listened to the audiobook narrated by Alex Winfield, and I loved it. I loved his voices. It's amazing. I mean, you don't even think about him really doing voices. He's all those people. So it's just been an absolute put, and I had to push pause more than once because I didn't want to get too far ahead of myself today, and I didn't want to give you all spoilers. So um, only the magical introduction that won't take you too far and, you know, wreck it for anybody. Um, So finally, uh, I want to welcome James again. He's a very kind, full of life spirit that all of us enjoy and appreciate with all our hearts. Um, James, would you please tell us a bit about yourself and your writing background, you know, whatever you pick, because remember, we're toasting you today and you're more important than Jeff Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> that's the Aww. truth. Yeah, yeah. Thank I'd you. Any day, you can sail on my yacht. I don't have one, but anyway, um, that's a bad joke. Um, and, uh, and I'm really interested in hearing about Hen. I instantly connected and cared about him. And so it's all good from here. So welcome, James.
2: Thank you, Elizabeth. I don't think I've ever had such a nice introduction in my life. I kind of feel like I'm at my own funeral. <laughs> somebody's reading <laughs> my eulogy. So that's lovely. Thank you very much. That's okay. That's um, Yeah, that was really, really cool. <laughs> Thank you, Elizabeth. Um, Thank you. So yeah, so <clears throat> my writing, so I guess sort of my writing journey, um, I don't, I'm not one of those people that kind of, I don't think I necessarily as a child understood the role of the author when it came to writing books. I don't quite know why. Um, I guess it's partly because unlike today, we didn't have authors come and visit schools. Um, And so I, it was only when I was a grown up that I actually met. Proper authors. When I was working in a bookshop, um, and also I'm a terrible speller, which if anybody's had an email from me, you will know. Um, and I wasn't a very good reader at school. In fact, I was put into a slow readers group, which a teacher once assured me don't exist anymore. And then another teacher said, "Well, they do. We just don't call them slow readers groups." Um, and and so I I felt like I was the complete opposite sort of person that would be an author until I started meeting authors. But I had always been a storyteller. I'd always loved telling stories, making up things, drawing maps of places that didn't exist, imagining the characters that lived there. And where I grew up, at the bottom of our garden, this sounds like I grew up in an Enid Blyton book, but it's not quite like that. Um, There was a very small wood at the bottom of our garden. And all of our friends' houses also backed on to this wood. And it was like our extended playground. So we just used to climb over the fence and go and play in the wood. And I have two older brothers that would go off and do big brother stuff and kind of leave me at the first kind of opportunity. And I didn't mind. I quite like that I liked having my own space playing my own games being lost in my own world and the wood for me was anything I wanted it to be so it was a bit like my kind of extended film set or stage or whatever I wanted it to be and so I think I was always telling stories all the way Um, and then it was just much later that I started to write them down but I never showed anybody anything that I had written until I started working. Well, I done. I did a short creative writing course um, through an organisation. I don't think the organisation itself exists anymore, sadly, because it was a very good creative writing course. Every module that you did, every kind of assignment was something completely different. So sometimes you would be writing... It was all aimed for writing for children, but sometimes you might be writing for young adults. Sometimes you might be planning a picture book. You might do uh, nonfiction for children or a kind of magazine article, or you might just be developing a character. And it was fantastic. It was the kind of, I think it gave me the, the kind of the boost that I needed. My tutor was really encouraging. Um, which I think was really helpful as well, because I hadn't dared to show anybody. <laughs> um, and then I and then obviously you have to when you're doing a writing course, um, as you all know. And that's I think that's what I said to you, Elizabeth, isn't it? On that on our one-to-one, it was like, I know exactly how you feel, because I I knew what it was like sending those pieces off and then waiting and waiting for the feedback to come. And then I'd see her email ping into my inbox and I'd I couldn't look at the the first time that I got feedback I didn't read the email for about three days because I was terrified she was gonna it was just gonna be like laughter in email form (laughs) and a kind of why are you doing this um and obviously it, it wasn't so um yeah so I I was doing that creative writing course and I'd had this sort of half idea for this for the apprentice witch story and my Um, tutor who incidentally was also called Julia must be something about Julia's and writing courses um, said if I wanted I could submit chapters from the book rather than do the remaining assignments so she was the first reader for the Apprentice Witch book really and one of the things she said to me was to find when I'd done the first draft and I'd edited the book as much as I could was to find either an independent editor or somebody like that that could give me constructive feedback because that's what we all need if we want to share our stories and make them as good as we can we need feedback on those stories um and and so I I had that in the back of my mind as I carried on writing the book and then found out about the Golden Egg Academy which I then was lucky enough to be accepted onto onto their course this was back in 2013, which feels like a million years ago now. And it was when I was working with my editor at Golden Egg, Bella Pearson, who had worked with uh, Philip Pullman, um, to, you know, and, you know, I don't even need to give you a longer list of people she'd worked with. She'd worked with Philip Pullman, there we go. Um, and she now runs her own publishing company called Guppy Books. And uh, she had heard about a scholarship with chicken house where they would basically give you some money to pay towards your golden egg course and so she sent them the apprentice witch as it was then with a view to them giving me some money (laughs) um and to cut a very long story short I could do a whole different conversation about being accepted by chicken house I had a couple of meetings with Barry Cunningham um who I never thought for a million years would be interested in the Apprentice Witch, because he's the publisher who originally published the Harry Potter books. And this was a book about a witch on a broomstick. And why would he want to do that again? Um, and so I, but he gave me some very good feedback, really useful feedback, which I responded to. But I kind of had in the back of my head the whole time that he wasn't, I wasn't going to get this scholarship. But I thought, well, I've had, I've had these two amazing meetings. I've had this amazing feedback that, you know, has cost me nothing really um and has been really useful and then i had this phone call where i kind of had worked myself up to the point that they were going to say thanks for trying but you know we're not going to go any further with this and it wasn't barry actually who told me it was rachel lyshint who's one of the editors excuse me and she said we're not going to offer you the scholarship and i said no i didn't think that was going to happen, and she said, "But we would really like to publish your book, which is a very rare thing." <laughs> and I, I never discount how lucky I was that that was how I, how the apprentice, which kind of came into being, um, and obviously we went went on from there. Um, so, in terms of moving on to the spell tailors um, which came out um, on Thursday. Um, I had finished writing the Apprentice Witch books. I finished the third one was published in 2019 and it was actually when I was just about to publish uh, the second book that we were discussing what I was going to do next. So um, Chicken House had already asked me to write the the trilogy Um, so we were saying, well, what, what's going to be the thing after Apprentice Witch? And they had, they I think they had a very clear idea in their head about where they wanted me to go. And so they they kind of half gave me a brief, but asked me to kind of come up with the idea myself, which I did. And they liked it, but they wanted changes to it. And so we did the changes to it. And then I went off and I I wrote it. And I did a couple of drafts and it just wasn't landing write for me or for chicken house and so they very kindly said look just go away and write whatever it is that you want to write um and come back to us um which was wonderful and you know brilliant that they had that confidence that I could go away and deliver because you know when when you have that conversation as nice as they were about it when they're saying look this isn't this isn't working you kind of think well perhaps that's it, perhaps those three books were all, all it was ever going to be. Um, and so, but I had had this idea for this idea of memories being kind of caught in weaving or woven fabrics. As I was writing The Apprentice Witch on one of my golden egg courses, we were kind of encouraged to just write something completely different from what we were writing at the time. And I had this kind of, bizarre memory thing <laughs> in the back of my head. And I was quite keen to involve a yak in the story somewhere, which I didn't it, The yak didn't make it into the book. I'm sorry, everybody. Um, so the yak will have to be, be featuring somewhere later. Um, and, and kind of in the breaks of doing the apprentice, Witch books and editing and writing, I would go back to this memory Weavers, I think it was called Memory Weavers originally, this Memory Weavers idea and, and tinker with it and think about the characters and where, where the story would take place. And then obviously I'd go back to Apprentice Witch and then it would be shelved for a bit longer. And when I was kind of going back to the drawing board, I I was kind of thinking of this story that again was partly, it was kind of thinking about my grandmother so there's always grandmothers. A friend of mine asked me recently, in all your books, is there going to be a grandmother? And are they going to have like a strange sort of Italian sounding name? And I said, well, maybe, although the next book I'm writing has neither. Um, so no. Um, but I spent a lot of time with my grandmothers growing up. And so they they kind of, you know, they they appear quite happily as characters in the book. And they, they just feel like very magical people to me. Um, and so I but when my grandmother well, the grandmother was younger, she had been a very ineffective maid in a country house. <laughs> I think she got fired after about 10 days because she was just the worst. And I kind of I still had this wonderful idea about this young girl who goes to be a parlour maid in this country house, but there's something magical also connected with this story. And part of the magic was to do with the box of clothes that they find in the house. And when the children put these clothes on, they sort of transform into different people. It's like the ultimate dressing up. So they put these clothes on and become completely different people. And so I pitched this idea to my agent. And she said, I really like the idea of the magical clothes, but the rest of it isn't doing it for me. (laughs) (laughs) and then gave me a long list of reasons why I shouldn't pursue that as an idea. But she said, I think there's something there about the magical clothes. Go away and think about that. And that was really the best bit of advice, really, because I was thinking, what could I do with these magical clothes? And then suddenly I was like, oh, the memory, the memories and the magic and the clothes, I just need to smoosh them all together. And that's the idea. And I quickly drew up a, an outline so i normally um when i'm for my contracts with chicken house all i have to show them usually is either an outline for a story or a sample of writing from that story um, because obviously hopefully they know i can write um, and they just want to know what it is that i'm planning to write and normally that's where we go from and so i sent them this outline which you won't be able to see but it's kind of, you know it's like a very extended blurb of the book has all the details about what's going to happen the main characters the main kind of thread ha 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 of the plot um and I also include some little pictures that have been my inspiration so you can see um I don't know how well you can see those there's some 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 um, embroidery and a a beautiful coat and then kind of some other visual references for characters and settings and and things like that Um, and it was the easiest book we i've ever sold to chicken (laughs) because normally they come back and say we like this bit of the story, we like this bit of the story, but we want more of this and we want more of that. So go away and redo the outline and then send it back to us. And that might take three, four months to kind of bash that out. Whereas they saw that and they never asked for any changes. Um, that's not to say we didn't when we were editing, but they basically loved it. And actually my agent said at the time, if they don't want it, I can sell it to 10 different publishers. Don't worry. So that was that kind of boosted my confidence back up again because i i felt a bit sort of deflated after the 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 book that hasn't gone anywhere yet um and so i started to work on the spell tailors um and as elizabeth i don't know who saw just before we start officially started elizabeth was showing us some beautiful garments that had that from her family kind of archive, I suppose, this is the best way to describe it, isn't it, Elizabeth? It's a beautiful pelisse jacket. Is it a pelisse jacket, Julia, or is it just a pelisse? Um, it's just a pelisse. Just a
0: pelisse.
2: There we go. Oh, we go. Elizabeth's showing you. It's beautiful. So it's like the sort of short jackets that um they wear in Jane Austen adaptations Um and obviously did back in the day. <laughs> Um, so similarly, um, I don't have a lot of, um, items that belong to to family members, but I do have these two biscuit tins. Um, and they, they came to me, one, the red one is, belonged to my mum and the blue one belonged to one of my grandmothers. And they came to me after both of them had sadly passed away and the blue one I knew, I knew what what was in both of them really, but I kind of forgotten. Um, So the blue one was filled with, always filled with photographs um, of people, postcards, letters. Um, There's even um, a book of common prayer um, in here that belongs to my great, great uncle, I think it was. Um, And in the front, you won't, I don't think you'll be able to see, it's so old, it's falling to pieces um I don't know if you, if the light will catch it he's written some prayers in pencil and you can only really see it when the light hits it so there's all these little artifacts and I went through them once when we when we first moved into this house I thought I'm going to sort through that tin because I knew there were bits in there that there were photographs of my dad my grandparents great grandparents that I knew of um and so I sorted the the contents into some piles so I had stuff that I knew who it was over here but then I had this bigger pile of photographs and letters and things that I have no idea who they belong to so they could be family members they could be just friends very distant relatives next door neighbors who knows but in the spell tailors there's a whole bit of the story in that Hen thinks he knows his family history in the shop and in the house where they live so the the, the spell tailor's shop is has the apartment above where the family will live and in this grand staircase that goes up from the shop into the apartment is the family gallery so it has paintings photographs of all of his ancestors going right, right back to the first spell tailor and it's like that's where you want to be if you've achieved something as a spell tailor your image goes on the family gallery and you're kind of assured your your place in, in history. But what Hen discovers is that there's other family members that never appear on that wall. And that's what made me kind of, and that was sort of inspired by these photographs because there are all these family, you know, I've been told family stories about uncles that died in the second and first world war, cousins that did things, but so many other family members that I'll never know their stories for. And then in the red biscuit tin is the other thing. And this is, the way Elizabeth has probably got to this bit already. So Hen does find a biscuit tin in the attic when he's, he's banished to the attic um, for upsetting his uncle once too often. And in the attic, he uncovers a biscuit tin that has a garment inside it, um, and the garment has a particular type of spell, a memory spell, stitched into it. And this biscuit tin is full of pieces of lace, um, sewing equipment. There's like little pouches for needles and things, um, and even this beautiful little blouse that I I think it must I think it's sort of Edwardian. I'm not sure. It's very short. Um, it would go under the police jacket quite nicely, I should think. <laughs> you need something else underneath it. Um, and there's also what you can't appreciate is this beautiful smell. At some point, some perfume or something must have been spelt on these things, and it's still, it's like somebody's just put it on. It's so beautiful. Um, so there's all these like this beautiful beading that I guess was there to be stitched onto something. And it just, again, it made me think that these things, these items belong to somebody, Belonged, I'm presuming, to family members. My mum never told me where they came from. Um, and so I don't know the stories of, of who they belong to, but kind of putting those together with those, those pictures and those stories that I don't know, I imagined my own stories for them. Um, and that became the heart, really, of, of what happens in the spell tailors. Um, what else do you want to know, Elizabeth? <laughs> oh, you're on mute.
1: Okay, that's classic. Um, of course I wanna, uh, you know, anyone, uh, actually James, let me jump ahead for one second and then no, 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 um, How would you like people to ask you questions? Um, oh, you I want- don't
2: mind if people want to put them in the chat or if people want to the ask chat. them to me you know, with their mouths, that's fine as well. (laughs) People want to hold a piece of paper to the screen. Um, (laughs) However, not sign language though or interpretive dance because it's, you know, you don't have all evening.
1: (sighs) So um, I wanted to, what you just described, I absolutely love that in your book, um, that transformative moment where Hen finds the box and all of a sudden it's like the sky is lifting up and mm. you know he's uh I forget what I think it was was it silk what does he feel I forget yeah it's,
2: what... a, it's a silk sort of half-finished um yep. item, isn't it it's um, the fabric. Yeah. yeah I and, think the, the fabric changed a lot because I suddenly realized during an edit that I had an awful lot of velvet <laughs> 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 nearly every garment i i wrote about seemed to be velvet for some reason so i have to, i was like oh, to pick a different fabric um, yeah
1: well I, I like the velvet reference actually because that's a very <laughs> strong um on a lot of levels of uh, fabric but um yeah so um I, I i'm going to go back to what i said no spoilers here um but <laughs> uh the beginning is so rich that it's fine to just talk about the beginning and um i was going to ask you about there was a lot i wanted to ask you. i had it written down about the dinelli is that the right the dinelli yeah, thing yeah, it? Yeah. The
2: dinelli. and it
1: goes back 400 years is that right and the story yeah. begins i believe in 1776 is that correct that, is
2: that that's the- when the spell tailors um business was established it was
1: established right in 1776 and um so where does that where does that all begin the the 400 years ago what what was the first you know real movement of you know why the family I got the I mean of course I know the story about the need for spell tailors which I found was fascinating like the protective stitch and all of that um, so so where did you get that that idea from, James? It's so amazing, the idea of special stitches being yeah. put in clothing and the magic of
2: that. In in earlier versions, um, without giving away too many spoilers, um, hen there were there was more than one garment that Hen finds in the attic. And so he go he went into different memories. Um mm-hmm. And at one point he actually goes into the memory that reveals or revealed the truth of Domenico Donelli, who was the first spell tailor, this kind of canny, um, wily businessman who realized actually that the the magic in the world was shifting or changing or fading slightly. And to preserve it, they realized that if they stitched the spells into into fabric, it somehow preserved the magic. But also in doing it, it made a different type of magic and and it imbued those stitches and the fabric themselves with magical properties. And so he realized, oh we can turn this into a money making scheme we can't be sorcerers anymore but we can you know we can adapt um and so he's quite he's the sort of canny businessman and and through that line um through the denelli line we end up with hen who himself is now looking to how he can mostly get his picture on the family gallery that's what he's thinking about at the beginning of the story but not too far in we realize that the the business might be in in peril um, when Uncle Bertie, Aunt Lucia and Cousin Connie descend on Hen and Nana's spell tailor shop because they've had to close their own through mysterious circumstances um, and also because there's a competitor who's making spelled garments in a factory um, or in factories Um, but Hen loves fixing things mending things reimagining how things can be assembled he likes to recycle clothes but uncle bertie doesn't see that as a future for the business because why would somebody have something mended you know why would somebody buy something new if they can just have the old thing mended um their business is making new garments not fixing old ones Um, and so he just doesn't see hen's point of view to start with Um, and yet obviously there's a there's a quite a clear link between poor hen and, and domenico although actually it wasn't really domenico shh perhaps we'll find out in a later book the um the true the true history of the spell tailors but that's what everybody thinks is that it's Domenico who was the who was the canny person. Um, and it's not quite, that's not quite how I truly imagined it. Um, yeah, so that's kind of that's where they've been established. The family, you know, big family that's kind of gone their separate ways. So um, some stayed on this on these islands called the Sicilian Islands, um, which was kind of you know a not too far leap from thinking they were sort of a vaguely Sicilian family. Um, if it was this world, um, some came to a country called Ingle um, and established the Spell tailor shop there under the Denali name. But then as we trace the the kind of immediate family tree back, Hen's Nana has only come from Cilia, sort of as a young girl, um, to take over the shop from her great uncle. and obviously she's then she's then had her own family um, and Uncle Bertie will be the one that takes over in time. So that's why there's the the tension really is that Nana's still there, but she's older and she doesn't really want the, the hoo-ha of running the family business. Uncle Bertie wants to run the family business, but clearly isn't doing the best job at it. Um, and Hen just wants to make clothes, but then discovers this new kind of or old kind of stitch um, that could be very is very important to the family, but could be important beyond the family and could save the business as well.
1: <coughs> and there's an interesting part um about hen's parents because we don't quite know you know what's going on there. He's he's being raised by his grandmother Who's uh, a very skilled uh, spell tailor, but still, this is the beginning. We discover um, it's a a major desire to create your own magical stitch, yeah,
0: okay?
1: something unique. And uh, she still hasn't done that yet, even though she's kind of a master. Is that right, James? She's kind of a
2: yeah. I mean, she's obviously been been spell tailoring her whole life, and but she she likes to experiment, and mm-hmm. um, throughout the book we see her knitting her famous red scarf um which she's always vaguely disappointed when she finishes and you don't find out until the very end why she's always disappointed with the scarves and she just gives them away to people um in a kind of you know you have it cuz it's it's not really very good um so with hen's parents so um this was more of a of a logistical thing so originally i had hen's parents be divorced and he lived with his mum and his nana in the spell tailor's shop but then i realized when i then introduced uncle bertie aunt lucia and connie there were just too many people in some of the family scenes and i get really confused when i have too many people in a scene (laughs) i learned early on not to have too many people in a scene and also there was the struggle between having um the the kind of the tension with uncle bertie and why his mum wouldn't just step in and deal with that kind of say look hen's my son back off um and also having the lovely nurturing aunt lucia who just worries constantly about everybody um that there would there was then too many people mothering him and you kind of think well he's not gonna he's not gonna what he needs to do because he's got too many people looking after him and so i killed them both off and i thought oh god no i can't keep killing kids parents off in books it's just that seemed it felt a bit too easy um and also you know it's kind of it's a bit expected in a way that you you know your, your main character's parents are probably dead or or kind of distracted elsewhere. So I decided to go for the distracted elsewhere, made them scientists. So they're not interested in spell tailoring and they're off doing their experiments, who knows where. Um, So we only get contact from them through letters and things and hence what keeps in contact with them that way. Um, Again, in an early draft, I did have them appear towards the end, um, but it just, it seemed rather pointless to have them just appear at the last moment. and actually work better for it for it not to be that they turned up um yeah interesting ways to dispatch parents um you should do we could do like a whole like you know I don't know paper on that Julie we could do a whole seminar (laughs) dispatching parents in middle grade literature
0: yeah the first rule is get rid of the parents yeah you say it doesn't have to be death or make the parents the problem yeah That's the, if you're going to keep them around, if they're, as you say, if they are there to nurture and look after, it's kind of like end of story. I'm going to go and have an adventure. No, you've got to do your homework.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Or, oh no, this happened. And the moment I'd like, oh, I'll ring the police. Oh, End of story. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so that's that's why I I sent the parents off to be scientists and do something else. So And obviously, as I said before, I had I spent a lot of time with my own grandmother's growing up and that was a very important relationship to me. And I think, you know, I think in lots of ways now, perhaps with with more you know, people don't often live as close to their grandparents. They don't spend as much time with, with grandparents or older people, particularly, whereas I did growing up. We had quite elderly neighbours. Um, and I just, I don't know, I love old people. Um, and so I and I think they they're underestimated in the real world, but also often underestimated or just made for like comedy relief in children's books. You know, they're kind of like, I remember saying to my nana once, <laughs> Shame. Why can't? Because she was. There's a. I don't know if you've got to the. Yeah, there's one of my actual memories of my grandmother is in the book where she ran through the local park and she was swinging around lampposts like we were in some sort of ridiculous musical. And it's like to this day, it makes me absolutely how with laughter to think about it. um And I remember saying to my nana when I was probably, you know, well I shouldn't have said it either way whatever age I was but I wasn't very old and I said to her why can't you just be like other old people and sit in the corner and dribble um which is obviously not what old people do um and certainly not what my what either of my grandmothers did so yes (laughs) shame on me
1: Yeah, so I'm actually, I uh, I support you in what you said with my whole, whole heart about older people. And I kind of crusade on that subject, actually, a little bit, especially going back to the United States. Um, and poor Charlie, you're going to have to listen to this, my son. But yeah, I mean, um, you know, wisdom, personality, experience, uh, ready to have fun, you know, no holding anything back um, and and a, a, a deep love comes with a lot of older people mm. and uh, you know, never discount that or underestimate it. I mean in, excitement is great, you know, youthful excitement and enthusiasm and that is special as well. but what you're talking about can parallel that and yeah. be even better sometimes. So honestly. Yeah. So that's a nice thing to mention. And I love that in a story. Absolutely.
2: I think I saw some questions pinging in the chat. Should we have a look? There's, there's a Bernie's asking when i'm planning to visit the us and especially in new hampshire i would love to come and visit bernie um i don't know when that's going to happen but that would be that would be great oh isa has a question how and when did you know what age group to write the story for um so i i think there was no question really with the spell tailors on the back of the Apprentice Witch that it wouldn't be for the same age group, really. I think they particularly when it's, although it's not my second book, it's my fourth book. I think with the start, with the next book after your kind of series, you probably wouldn't go too far outside of, of that same age group. Um, although obviously it's been quite a gap between the Third Apprentice Witch and this. So I, I've probably, <laughs> probably lost quite a lot of my apprentice witch readers they've probably grown up and move on to other things anyway so it it probably wouldn't have been too much of a problem but I think certainly Chicken House would have expected me to continue with that similar age group for that book Um, but initially when I started to write The Apprentice Witch the idea I'd had I thought it would be a YA book and I don't know why because I don't. I do read way, but I don't read a lot of it. It's certainly not what I'm passionate about. And I was, I'm passionate about writing for middle grade readers because I think those are the books. When I think of the books that really impacted on me to start with, it was those books that I read during that sort of seven to twelve sort of age range. Things like the 101 Dalmatians and the Narnia books. You know, massive impact on me um and so that's kind of that's why I write for that age group really I think they're the books that that you'll remember always and hopefully share with with your own children grandchildren nieces nephews um and then talk about you know when you're older and go oh can you remember when you first read you know I don't think, you know, I'm <laughs> not saying my book's as good as the Narnia books, but it would be nice to think that somewhere down the line two people might go, Oh, do you remember when you read The Spell Tailors or The Apprentice Witch? That would be lovely. Um, so that's I think that's the main reason for writing for age group. I see in the Swedish marketing of the book, it's six to nine years old. That will be younger than The Apprentice Witch. Yeah, it I mean, it differs from country to country as well, Lisa, because I know with the Apprentice Witch Books, they were published in Spanish, but they were much more aimed at, at teen readers actually. And that's to do with reading levels in different countries and different markets. Um, so the the covers are more sophisticated than probably the than the cover that we had in the UK, because they were looking more at the kind of the young teenager rather than the rather than the pre Um Market, so I think that has an impact on where where your book's being published and what the age, the reading age is. Sorry, rather than the age range, the reading age of the child, children reading them.
1: So, Tania, were you going to say something?
3: I was. I was just going to say a, a quick thank you to to James for being so um forthcoming about your struggles as a child with reading and writing. Um, one of my my boys, my middle son, who is now 12, uh, he's our ADHD superstar and he still has a really hard time writing letters, actually just forming the letter and having it go in the right direction and reading. And yet he is our most creative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, this kid's destined for something creative. Um, and so I always, as as his mom, and I, I know so many other moms that have kids that are these, we, you know, we kind of refer to them as the IEP kids, the individual education plan. So they have a to get their help through school they have their IEP and it's just it's so hard for him so I love finding these examples such as yourself where you know you that part didn't come easy um, as a child and yet you're still so much of your adult life is uh, is there so thank you for sharing that I hope you continue Um, to share that story with lots of kids
2: yeah I mean it's one of the things I do talk about when I when I go to school visits the fact that I wasn't you know I I wasn't a good reader at school and, and, and I still, you know, I still, I'm, I I still am a slow reader. I cannot read quickly. I have a friend who could read, you know, she could have read The Spell tailors probably in, in half a day. Um, I cannot do that. And I think partly it's from not having been a very proficient reader as a child, but also something to do with being used to reading I've worked in bookshops and libraries all my life as well reading out loud to people so I always read something as I'm reading out loud with the pauses and you know I even do the silly voices in my head um so I think that's also part of the part of the thing as well but the thing I also say to children these now is that you know there are so many different ways to tell stories books are one of the ways. But then that's not the only way to tell a story. You know, we've got, there's graphic novels, there's films, there's, you know, the computer games now are so much more sophisticated than they were when when I was a child. And it's all rich, amazing storytelling. Um, So it doesn't mean that if you want to tell stories that you have to sit and physically write them. You can find a different way to tell stories. It doesn't have to be that way if that doesn't feel right for you. Um, because it's not it's not going to fit for everybody at all um yeah good luck to him charlie asked a question in the chat and said are you sticking more with series writing or would you consider standalone novels um so this currently is a standalone novel because the next book i'm writing isn't the Continuation of the Spell Taylor story. Um, initially, I Chicken House asked if I had an idea for a second book, which I do, um, and they were quite happy with with the suggestion. But they also um, wanted to look at you know having a completely different book um they're obviously thinking more from a business point of view and what they can sell to different publishers around the world because that's how they make their money and they make use of money as well um and so the net the book I'm writing at the moment um in between doing everything else um is not the second spell tailor's book it's something completely different it's a bit mad as well I'm i'm not gonna lie it's a bit crazy um but they seem to like it so um yeah we'll we'll see Um, and hopefully that will come out either late next year or early 2024 depending on how quickly i get on with my draft and editing and things like that
1: so i'm gonna follow up with we're gonna do a bit more of the nepotism here with my son (laughs) charlie um so, James, I heard a, a nice uh, interview, a brief one with um, Barry Cunningham talking about uh, your potential uh, TV show. And is that still something I hope that's in the works? I know I, I thought I'd ask you because I know you, you kind of have to wait and see what happens. And so I wanted to hear you know your thoughts on that because that was really exciting. And, and I wanted to add it was super exciting because Charlie love the books because scholastic had these books and it was the show house of Anubis i don't know if oh, you yeah. saw that and apparently <laughs> a connection um with your potential show
2: yes yeah, so, so um so i it was just before the second apprentice witch book came out that um i had a call from barry um it was in the throes of we had a terrible winter storm back in 2018 called the beast from the east um that kind of brought the country to its knees um, ruined my book launch um completely um but i was still working full-time at the time as well and i was in one of my libraries back down in cambridgeshire for a meeting and in a break in this meeting i was making coffee or something my phone rang and it was barry and i you know, he occasionally rings to sort of ask me something or tell me something or um, stuff like that. And so I didn't think too much of it. And he said that there was a TV production company that were interested in possibly taking on The Apprentice Witch um, with a view to turning it into a TV series. And that the, the chap, a guy called Tim, would be at my Book launch when it was rescheduled, and I was, uh, you know, pressure um, to then be sparkling and brilliant and, you know, clever like that. Um, and Tim, um, who works for a company called Lime Pictures, um, has previously worked um, on the House of Anubis um, and loads of other stuff. He also worked on, I discovered, and I don't know if this will mean anything to anybody else apart from Julia, I'm sure will know. Pingu. So, you know, that was fine. You know, anything he said was good with me. Pingu's like a little claymation ping penguin, I can't even say penguin now. Um, it's it's a bit bizarre. Um so yeah, so I met I met Tim and um and we had a nice chat. Um, and then it was probably, I think it was that was sort of February time. February, March, and around about Easter, I got a contract for the for the initial kind of period for, for optioning the rights for the books. Um, and he, so that was 2018. Here we are in 2022 and still no TV series, but there has been lots of stuff going on in the background, a lot of stuff that I can't tell you about because TV executives will swing through my writing room window, put a sack over my head and beat me, you know, beat me about the head with, I don't know, I was going to say a DVD box, but who has DVDs anymore? Um, a Netflix subscription, probably. Um, so there's lots of development going on, but TV is much slower than publishing, which is already a very slow entity. <laughs> um, but there, there is stuff, it is still going through, there is still, people are still working on it, some very exciting people are working on it which again I can't tell you about Um, what can I tell you I've seen a pilot episode script for the first episode which was very exciting Um, but yeah that's kind of it's one of those things that when people ask me about it thank you for asking about it I get excited and I get to tell you a little bit about it but when it's not happening it goes back in its biscuit tin (laughs) goes under the bed and I don't think about it because I think you could probably drive yourself quite mad thinking when's it happening when's it happening when's it happening um and it's so out of my control that I just unless I see an email from Tim or he rings I don't really think about it too much unless somebody is kind enough to ask and then and then I have to kind of say little bits, but I can't tell you all of the stuff I wish I could tell you. Um but yes, it's still, it's still trendling nicely along. Um and hopefully, hopefully soon should go into full production, at which point you will hear me all the way in New Hampshire (laughs) (laughs) screaming with excitement and I'll tell you all the details then.
1: And, and we'll be screaming back at you. And thank you for opening the biscuit tin again for us and getting us excited, honestly. So that sounds really good, James. That sounds good.
2: Yeah, I think it's, it's an yeah. exciting thing. And I think it's it's rare for, for it to go, you know, certainly Barry and my agent were saying it's very rare for things to get this far down the line. Um, Barry was saying that with Chicken House, they've had two other series that have been sort of in, produ- you know, pre-production. Um, he said, I haven't quite reached the pinnacle of one which was in pre-production for, I think, seven years. He says, I've got a bit of a way to go before yes, gets that. And I don't even think that's even gone into production yet. So they must've just been slightly ahead of me. And I can't remember the name of the book that he told me. Um, but I think, you know, these things do happen um and they can be so and obviously of course we've had COVID in the middle which probably hasn't helped things either um so yeah we'll just we'll just wait and see perhaps by the time it's ready and on on the telly my little girl will be old enough to sit and watch it
0: <laughs> I just want to point out Nancy's got a really interesting question in the chat Let's have a look at that. thank you James
2: Uh, My question is about developing the idea. I know you spoke a bit to this already. So the premise of the story, i.e. The tale, is is an awesome foundation, but how do you develop all the characters, personalities to make the story interesting and hold together? Do you make a family tree ahead of time? Are you a plotter or a panster? I'm a planster, Nancy, (laughs) which means I make my plan, which is like what I showed you. Where's it gone? Um, My outline. And by the time I've kind of worked on that for maybe, you know, a month, six weeks, two months maybe. And it's kind of been pinged backwards and forwards between me and I might share it with some writer friends to get their sort of input, obviously share it with my agent, show the publishers. Um, by that point, I think it's so fixed in my head what the story is that I tend to just set that aside and then start writing and not worry too much about what I put in there and so far, touch wood, nobody's come back to me and said, hang on a second, this is not what you put in your outline. <laughs> I don't veer too far off, off track, but obviously you think you do change things as you're writing the story just because you suddenly realize actually that doesn't, it's not working. When you get to the actual writing of it, you realize that that it's not gonna work for whatever reason. Um in terms of developing characters. I think ooh, it's a very good question I think a lot of that comes with with working with my editor I think that's one of the things that often comes through with working with my editor um and that might be you know just and she often does it in terms of posing questions to me so it's not about her saying you need to make your character do this to develop them but she might say let's think about you know what somebody's motivation at actually is behind this action um or what you know what what's this person thinking while this is going on um and it does in those sorts of things that then make you think oh hang on a second i need to i need to draw this out a little bit um but i think also you know hopefully i've I've learned as I've written three books and developed the characters over those individual books and over the course of, over the arc of the three books as well. Um, so I think developing the characters feels a not easier thing to do, but it does feel like it's something I'm more aware of myself when I'm when I'm writing and editing myself to kind of l- look at those things as well. And also I think for me, like I said before, not having a cast that's too sprawling <laughs> makes that a lot easier because you can you can see how those things are shifting and changing as the story goes on um for example with with spell tailors there's there's a kind of relationship shift between Hen and Connie. So although they're cousins, they've not spent an awful lot of time together um, and their relationship to begin with is quite frosty. And then it's through their actions and through what happens in the story that they become closer. And then again, something happens and sort of pulls that apart a little bit. Did somebody just gasp in shock? (laughs) And um, And then it's about knitting that back together again, knitting pun intended um oh and then um uncle bertie who's kind of he's sort of all over the place because he's mega stressed with the whole trauma of the business and things and and his relationship with hen um that was i think it's fun as well it's fun doing all of those things um developing the characters and changing them and and thinking about how how they're going to play out but it comes to me i don't think about it too much in advance it comes through the writing and the editing that bit of the development I can't I can't always plan how somebody's going to be um that that comes as you start to write them and get to know them through writing them that might sound a bit he's a bit crazy thinks the characters are talking to him um I don't think that but they do <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: James, on that happy, free-spirited moment, I think I—I um, I, I guess we're going to transition into the rings of power discussion. And I thought we'd all give James a very Shire-like toast and and wish him well. And um, I, and I know I don't—you don't need another eulogy, James, but I'm sorry. We just all love you so much. And that's the truth. And, and I want to wish you well. and I love the book. Absolutely uh-huh. love the book and I hope everybody gets to enjoy it. And it will be one of those special books that I, I put in a spot and revisit. And I just loved everything. I mean, there's so much I wanted to talk about, but it, it would just be about even the cloth, the magical cloth book. That's cloth mm-hmm. that that Hen knows about that has all the secret spells and and um, I, I just loved it. I loved everything about it. So just wanted to say that. And I want to wish you well. And you look well. I wanted to add that. You you do well under pressure, James Pickle, because <laughs> <laughs> and Don't forget,
2: and, I've got that Zoom filter cranked well up. And I've got a ring light here. So I don't, I look like an orc, actually. <laughs>
1: Far from it, but fine. All orcs should look so good, right, guys? <laughs>
2: I, look, I look like an orc with a perm.
1: So here here's to James Nickel, oh. and we want to wish you all things healthy and well and happiness and joy to you and your family. And thank you so much, James, for visiting with us today. And thank, thank you.
2: you it's lovely to see everybody again. Thank you very Cheers. much. Cheers.
0: Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Mythmakers. If you'd like to come and join us on one of the courses, the next six week online fantasy course starts in October. Details can be found on the link on our show notes or on our website. Also, we didn't have a chance to ask where in all the fantasy worlds would be the best place to be something, which is usually how we finish. So I thought in honor of James's book, I'd ask the question, where in all the fantasy worlds is the best place to be a tailor. And thinking about this, I actually went old school. And one of my favorite children's books for illustrations is The Tailor of Gloucester, which you may remember is that beautifully illustrated um, story about mice in a tailor's shop. And I think for me, that always leaves me with a very warm glow, showing how fantasy can be also um, a form of fairy story when you're little, uh, with the magic of imagining creatures coming in and doing the work for you, which of course is wonderfully attractive, for the idea of the tiny stitches. So that would be my pick. Uh, we'd love to hear from you where you would pick as the best place to be a tailor. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.
1: Thanks for listening to Mythmakers Podcast. Brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide.